May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be now and always pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, last week, and I was preaching, and you may remember that I mentioned a friend who would start each day with the question, Lord, how can I please you today? Well, as it happens, uh, this week's passage gives the answer. We're returning to the letter to the Hebrews, the final chapter, although actually this isn't the last in our series of sermons because we'll be covering Hebrews chapter 11 um, during Advent. We'll come back to that as you'll see. Lord, how can I please you? Well, in one sense, of course, the answer is that we can't. Even our very best deeds wouldn't stand up to his strict scrutiny. There's always at least some layer of selfish pride mixed in with what we do. But God's Son has stepped into our shoes to please God for us. He lived in perfect obedience as if he were us, as us. He offered his life in perfect sacrifice for us. And now he stands in heaven representing us. And so God the Father welcomes us as he welcomes Jesus. And then, having given us his spirit, we can, nonetheless, please him. Jesus has made it possible. Living to please God. That's the theme of these quick-fire instructions that Viv read a moment ago from Hebrews chapter 13. Now, we know that that is the theme because... If you've got the Bibles open, and it really, really would help particularly with this talk as we, as we walk through Hebrews 13, to have it open. I've got it on page 1327 of the Bibles. I'm aware there are a couple of different editions in the room, so somebody may have to, you may have to look in the index for Hebrews. But in my one here, it's 1327, Hebrews chapter 13. But if you just look at the previous verse, or the, just at the end of chapter 12, actually verse 28 of chapter 12, it talks about there how we need to be, we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, so let's be thankful and so worship God acceptably. Worship God in a way that is acceptable to him. And then when we come to chapter 13, we find that phrase pleasing to God. We find it twice in chapter 13, sorry. In chapter 13, we find that phrase twice. Just have a look at verse 16. Chapter 13 now, we're in chapter 13, verse 16. The writer says, And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. And then again, verse 21. May the God of peace equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in you what is pleasing to him. How could this young church please God? Delight God's heart as it faced persecution and fought the temptation to return to the familiar old Jewish ways. And how can we please him in our very different context? Lord, how can we please you? Well, we're going on a brisk walk through this chapter. Each of these separate instructions could, um, could merit a sermon um, and a whole study in and of itself. But we're going through a very brisk walk through the chapter, and then we're just going to trust the Holy Spirit of God, as it were, to highlight, to light up particular points in your life, to ring the buzzer when we go through and you think, oh gosh, I need to pay attention to that. And uh, let's trust the Spirit to do that as we march through it at quite a pace. So, here we go. First one, 
Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Well, they were persecuted, they were tempted, so that means they needed to stick together as a family to carry one another. Brotherly, sisterly love. That love is supposed to be constant and caring, helping, protecting and warm, which of course takes commitment and it takes effort because it doesn't always come naturally. Sometimes it takes apologies, forgiveness and repentance. It takes openness. Now, talking of openness, how open is our home to others? Verse 2, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now, some members of the church had lost their um, property in persecution. They'd lost their houses. Uh, visiting preachers and evangelists needed hosting. Do you know the difference between hospitality and entertaining. They are slightly different. Entertaining involves playing the genial host. It's about sort of expressing yourself through what you, you offer. That's not hospitality. Hospitality is about being you and letting others be them in your company. It's a very different thing. It's about bringing people into your normal life and just letting them be themselves. What does that mean? Entertaining angels. Well, it seems to be a reference to a famous incident in Abraham's life, recorded back in Genesis chapter 18, when Abraham and Sarah unwittingly serve up a meal to angels. I think the point the writer's making is that if we open our homes to bless somebody else, we may discover that actually we're infinitely more blessed than they are. I can remember years ago hosting a Rwandan missionary when, when Katie and I lived in central London. And I'm sure, well, I hope that his, our, our central London base was a um, help to him because his visit was a huge blessing to us. Wonderful blessing to us. That's how it works. Now, of course, some people see their own homes as a kind of a limpet sees its shell. No one, my little fortress. And uh, we mustn't be like that. If you've got the space and resources, then ask God for opportunities to, to use them as a gift to others. And uh, we don't need to live in a mansion to have somebody around for coffee, particularly somebody perhaps who maybe doesn't get invited to coffee very often. Why not do that? Now, of course, there are some people who couldn't come into any home because they were in prison. And in those days, prisons did not have canteens. So verse 3, continue to remember those who are in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who were ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering because, of course, taking food to prison for those you knew in prison would be to risk the shame of being associated with the prisoners. Well, so what? Who cares? We ought already, says the writer, to have associated with them in our minds. It pleases God when we stand in solidarity with those who suffer and are in prison, when we imagine ourselves in their place. Why do we do that? Is it just a vanity exercise? A kind of, a, you know, trying to make, salve our consciences to make ourselves feel better? No, not at all. We put ourselves in the place of the tortured pastors in China or the, the, um, the, 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 the people in concentration camps in North Korea or those poor, the, the, the women in villages in, in Nigeria raped and, and enslaved. We put ourselves in their position precisely so that we can pray 
That's the point, so that we can pray with them. We must do it. Love, hospitality, solidarity. Well, two instructions are about to come up now that apply a couple of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery and you shall not covet. So here we go. This is what the writer is, is moving to now. Verse 4, marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Now, there's a, there's a, a rumour that God is only interested in sexual morality, which of course isn't true. He's interested in all areas of morality, but he does care about sexual morality. Um, and he will judge unrepentant sexual misconduct. So, marriage must be honoured by all. God defines marriage at the beginning in those famous words, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And it's honouring that pattern that pleases him. So he's not pleased if a man joins himself sexually to a person who is not his wife, or if a woman joins herself to a person who is not her husband, or if we fantasise about doing so. So married men, of whom I am one, let us make sure that we are exclusively committed to our wives, um, honouring them in body and in mind, not engaging in sort of, you know, letting our minds stray into fantasy. That's absolutely mustn't be. We must honour the, 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 the wife God has given us. It's the same with, with married women. You, this is what we must attend to, be exclusively committed in mind and body to our husband or to our wife. Single people, the, know for sure that your faithful celibacy delights the heart of God. He's delighted with it, pleases him. Okay, thou shalt not covet, the tenth commandment. What has he got to say about this? Verses five and six. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Oh, the love of money. It's, the, it's a, such a dire infection. Um, it's absolutely lethal infection. Um, so bad that people who are most affected don't know they've got it. In fact, huge, vast numbers of people don't know we've got it. But there is an antibiotic that kills it. Here's the truth. The, tr the antibiotic truth is that Christians already have everything that's worth having. Everything. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. It's one of the, uh, the sayings in the original language. It's, it's, it's even stronger, more strongly expressed saying he will absolutely never, ever, ever leave you. In other words, we've got the living God with us, and he's never going to leave our side. That's everything. We've got everything. So the Bible isn't against owning things or enjoying things. Of course, we must attend to the, the material side of life. Absolutely. But we mustn't be the fool who thinks that some new thing or other is going to satisfy our aching soul. Our souls ache for fulfillment and the idea that some stuff that we might buy is going to be like cream that soothes that longing. That's a, you're a dupe if you think like that and we all do sometimes. I wonder if you're frequently discontent. Ask yourself, am I a discontent? Well, ask God to forgive you. And give thanks instead. And know that 
God is most delighted in us, when we are most delighted, contented, and satisfied in him. Well, this church in, that received the letter to the Hebrews, it must have been well led in the past because those early leaders had modelled all of this that the writer had in mind. So he moves on to them in verse 7 to 8. Remember, he says, remember back, remember your leaders, the ones who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. Consistency. As those former leaders lived to please God, so let the present church live. And we should imitate that too. Jesus doesn't change. Same yesterday, today and forever. And so the essentials of the God-pleasing life don't change as well. I wonder if you've got role model um, role models in the Christian life who have gone to heaven ahead of us and you think back to their lives copy them of course within the, the uh, context of your own uh, personality and, uh, and uh, your own, your own um, traits but copy them keep them fresh in mind those people, think of them now I bet there are people you think that person, the outcome of their way of life they had that calm, that peace, that whatever it was that is what I'm going to imitate Jesus doesn't change. And as the Queen, in fact, well, not the Queen in person, she wasn't able to make the opening of the new General Synod of the Church of England, um, but the new General Synod convened last week and the Queen had sent her address, delivered by um, Edward. And uh, she said in her address that things don't change. Jesus does not change and his teaching doesn't change. But this is where we move on to now. In every generation, people try to twist it, the teaching. Of Jesus, And at that time, there were false teachers who were urging the church to trust in the Jewish sacrifices and to eat the ceremonial foods of the temple. That was the false teaching. But it was a deception and it was a robbery. So verses 9 and 10, here he says, Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods which is of no benefit to those who do. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. You think, hang on, what does he mean? We have an altar to eat from. What is this privileged altar that we can eat from? Because that's what they did in the temple. They would share the meat from the, 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 the sacrifices, the food from the sacrifices. That will do you no good, says the writer. Um, we have an altar to eat from. Well, it's not... There's nothing to do with the altar in the temple of Jerusalem or the, the tabernacle of Jerusalem. Nothing to do with it with a piece of furniture in the church. That's not the altar we have to eat from. No. It, it's picture language for Jesus. Jesus who offered himself on the altar of the cross as a sacrifice and then entered into heaven to secure our access to the Father. You know, if we chew on that, chew on those themes of God's grace to us in Christ, chew on that. And wait, and you will find the Holy Spirit strengthening you with grace. If you've never sat still long enough to do that, then do it, and you'll find it's true. Let no false teaching deceive us and rob us of our privileges. The sacrifice of Christ. Well, it's the basis of more riches than we yet realize. It's also the pattern of the disgrace 
we must be willing to share. So the writer reflects a little bit more now on the Jewish sacrifices. The blood, he remembers, was carried into the temple, but the bodies of the animals that were sacrificed were burned outside the camp, outside the city. And that's a picture of disgrace. The disgrace of Jesus, Jesus who was crucified outside the city. There is a green hill far away outside the city wall. He was, he was rejected from the city. He was a reject, disgraced in that place outside the city, that place of execution. Well, the first readers, in other words, faced a choice. They could stay inside the camp. That is, they could just blend in with the world, um, with their context and all of its values. Or, verse 13 such a powerful verse. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. So he's saying to them, you can't have both um, the comforts and the, the honor of life in the camp and the privileges of Christ. If you really want Christ, he says to them, you have to share his disgrace as well. Real disgrace. You might lose your property and your freedom, which is in fact what had happened to some of them. That's a disgrace. Imagine how stupid others in the society would have considered them to, to, to have followed Christ. We may, um, if we follow Christ, be considered intellectually deficient or socially backward or just plain naive, stupid squandering all the best things that life supposedly has to offer. Pathetic. I wonder if you value your social standing, uh, the respect that you have in the eyes of others. Don't hold it too tightly. Can't follow Christ and hold that too tightly. You can't. Do you know the moment you joined yourself to Jesus Christ, in fact, the moment Richard and Ben and the, the others will be baptized next week, what they're saying is they're saying, I'm joining myself to someone whom the world despises. We, we embrace that disgrace in principle the moment we come to Christ. And a moment of decision will come, the moments of decision do come when our true allegiance will be revealed. Are we really um, of, uh, of this world? Are we really inside the camp? Or have we gone outside the camp willing to bear the disgrace that he bore? Well, then we ask the question, hang on, but how can we do this? I mean, hold our property, our freedom, our reputation thus lightly? How can we do that? Well, <laughs> we're helped by the fact that we're assured it's not going to last anyway. Verse 14, another one of my favorite verses in the whole New Testament. For here we have no enduring city, but we are looking for one that is to come. Here we have no abiding city, but we seek the one that is to come. So we might be living now, but surely we're not living for now, are we? We're living now, but we're living for then. This world and its values, it's all under judgment. Its days are short. It, we, we live in a city of dust. The smile of this world, its glossy media and its, and its uh, flashing lights, it's all dust. The smile of this world is worthless to anybody who knows that they've got a share in a city of gold, the heavenly city of God that will last forever. I expect some of you know that saying um, from a famous quote from um, 
from Jim Elliott, the missionary who was killed back in the 50s by those um, Ecuadorian uh, tribes people he had gone to to, uh, to take the gospel to. Do you remember his phrase? Some of you won't know it yet, but here it is. It's, it's, it's amazing. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Shall I say that again? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We have no abiding city here, but we seek one that is to come. So let's abandon our sinful longings to please this world and let us learn to please and to worship the living God instead. Which leads us to verses 15 and 16. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, because with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So Jesus offered one perfect sacrifice, and by that one perfect sacrifice, God remakes people into those who love to offer him not sacrifices to earn his, uh, his, his love. No, sacrifices of praise and freely offered worship and thanksgiving. It pleases him when we sing his praise, speak about him to others, love and share with one another. It fulfills the purpose of his heart. That, that's, what he gave, that's what he gave his son for. That's what he created us for. To, to return glory and love towards him with joy. And of course, this is what church life is all about. Not only our services, but our love for one another as we walk through life together. It's what church life is about. And talking about church life, the writer makes a comment about church leaders. Verse 17. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they watch over you as those who must give account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Now, church leaders, of course, are not always worthy of such respect. The Bible is very clear about that in plenty of other places, and unfortunately, plenty of recent news headlines confirm it. But there's another side to it, too. I know godly, faithful ministers whose congregations have made their life a misery. And uh, they've basically, or it's not usually the whole congregation, it's usually just a few, have basically shredded them by a thousand paper cuts of criticism and grumbling. Now, churches like that, and can I just give God all praise that our church is not one of them. Oh, I'm so grateful, I'm sincerely grateful as I talk to friends all around the place for that um, truth about our church. But churches that are like that, they don't deserve a minister. From my point of view, that would be the one reason it would be worth becoming a bishop. Not that that's ever going to happen. But it would be to say to those churches, you ain't having one. I'm terribly sorry, you don't deserve a minister. Forget it. And of course they shoot themselves in the foot. How are they going to grow in faith, these churches, if the person God has entrusted to help them is discouraged, exasperated, and frankly, sometimes even crushed? What the aim is, really, is being talked about there in verse 17, is a virtuous cycle of encouragement. An encouraging congregation empowers its minister to encourage them. And so the joy grows. 
and I experience it myself in this congregation. I'm very thankful for that. And of course, not only should there be a virtuous cycle of encouragement, what about a virtuous cycle of prayer? That's what the writer wants, and he asks them to, in verse 19, as we move on, to pray for him and his fellow missionaries. Pray for us, he says. And then, in verses 20 to 21, he prays for them, uh, making a request that will bring the sermon, uh, bring this sermon now, um, that I'm preaching, will bring it to a close. I'm going to end with this request in verses 20 and 21. We ask the question, Lord, how can we please you? Well, we've had various things this morning, lots of them actually. Love, hospitality, solidarity with those in prison, sexual purity, marital faithfulness, um, material commitment, willingness to bear disgrace for the sake of Christ, offering of continual sacrifice of praise to God. You say, well, thank you. Well, that's a useful list about how to do it. But how will we actually do it? See, the thing is, a lot of this goes against the grain of our nature a lot of the time. So where will the power come from to enable us to please him? Well, before closing out the letter with some greetings that you can uh, read there from verse 22, um, the writer prays that the God who has saved us through the shed blood and the risen life of Jesus will himself supply the power. So own this prayer. Now let's read it. I'm going to read it. It's our uh, closing words of this sermon. Own this prayer as I read it now. Make it, make it your own. Verses 20 to 21. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip us with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever.